Uh, gentlemen, I, uh, I won't take up too much of your time this morning, but I do want to talk to you just for a minute about this moment in history. I think we're standing on the precipice of an unprecedented moment in kingdom history, gang. I think there's an opportunity for the church to see renewal, perhaps better than any opportunity in my lifetime. The reason I believe that is really simple. If you look at the history of the church, when it's experienced renewal, it's almost always during times of crisis. It's during times of war, famine, difficulty, hardship, and persecution that the church has often been renewed. These are the times when it impacts society most often. Even just think within the last century, China, when we underwent uh, the communist regime reign, the church was persecuted in the beginning, and the missionaries had to pull out of China in the uh, middle of the last century. When the church pulled out, when the missionaries pulled out, they weren't sure what they'd discover when they finally were able to get back in and see what was happening in the church. But what they discovered was that while the persecution was taking place, the church had exploded with growth. It had moved forward like never before. Think with me about Vietnam. Again, uh, you know, 1960s, late 1960s, CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, had to evacuate Vietnam because there was persecution taking place. The war was taking place. We'd actually had one of our missionaries martyred over there. We pulled out the missionaries. We were not sure what we would discover when we got to go back. 25 years later, we get back into Vietnam, and what we discovered was the church had exploded. It hadn't just survived. It had thrived under that crisis. And as a result, it is now our largest field anywhere in the Christian Missionary Alliance because of the explosion of growth that took place under the presence and power of God in a time of crisis. It's often true. It's even true in Scripture. Think with me about Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. And there's this tremendous movement of the Spirit that begins. But what's interesting about the movement, if you read Acts carefully, is Jesus had commanded them to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, until the ends of the earth. But what they did was when the Spirit got poured out, they stayed in Jerusalem because it was comfortable, because things were good, because no one wanted to leave the presence of God that got poured out until Acts chapter 8, persecution came to the church. And with the persecution that came to the church, the church scattered. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 4, this phrase, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which is what they were supposed to do. And then verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, and the movement of God began to explode throughout the Roman Empire. But it took a crisis to get the church ready to fulfill their mission. This is often the case in kingdom history. And I think we're standing on a crisis unlike any other in my lifetime. It's not just the COVID-19 stuff. It's not just the sickness. It's not just the death. In the midst of crisis, the cracks of the human soul begin to get exposed. 
in your life and my life. This is why God starts to get access to do a deeper purging. But it's not just the cracks of the human soul that get exposed. The cracks in human society get exposed. And right now we're seeing civil unrest as the racism gets exposed in our society. And I'm telling you, it is connected to this stuff. I think we're living in desperate times and desperation is often the platform for breakthrough. And I think we've got an opportunity set before us that is unlike any other. Listen, my whole life I've battled for one thing and it's revival. And uh, the reason I battle for revival gang is very simple. I want to see racism eliminated in our society, but I think if I only battled for the cause of justice on that issue, for example, or if I chose the abortion issue, if I only battled for those causes, I can't change the human heart by battling for laws and justice. And without heart change, there can't be permanent change. So I battle for revival because I think it's the one hope of the world that there could be true reform in society because the heart would be changed. And so I think we stand on this incredible moment in kingdom history. Here's the issue. The church must be prepared if we're going to seize the moment. And so what I want to talk with you about today is I want to talk about three things the church must do to be prepared. And by the church, I simply mean it starts with you and me. So what must we do to be prepared? And, uh, you know, I'm speaking from my book, Common the Storm, but at the end of the day, I'm going to use different stuff and so forth. But you can read that book on your own if you want to. Let me give you the three things. Number one, I think the church must be purified. We must be purified. There has to be a purging in our lives, if we're going to make room for more of God. I said to you before, crisis reveal cracks in the soul. And what happens is, as these cracks start to get exposed, we start to realize there's places where we really haven't given God access yet. And these are opportunities for us to give God access. Hebrews chapter 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I think there's an eschatological meaning to that text. In other words, you can't get to heaven and see Jesus without receiving through faith the gift of righteousness that Jesus imparts to you, okay? And that's true. But I also think that there's a here and now meaning to the text. You can't get to your next level of intimacy with God without a fresh purging in your soul. Prior to every new depth we enter with God is a fresh spiritual purging. And I think crises often create the opportunity. Now, let me just get real personal and give you an example of my own life, and you can do some parallel learning in yours. When this crisis started hitting, um, You know, one day my wife comes up to me and she says to me, are you irritated with me? And I said to her, no, but I am definitely irritated. She said, what are you irritated for? And I said, I don't know, but I'm figuring it out. And so here's what I can tell you I discovered in my soul. The reality was that everything got canceled 
on terms of my speaking engagements from the very first weekend in March, now all the way through September, okay? Everything got canceled. And I make my living, majority of my income comes from speaking engagement and books that I sell at those speaking engagements. And what I was feeling was a multiplicity of things. First, I was feeling fear. And part of the fear I was feeling was really financial. I wasn't afraid of getting sick. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm more than eager to go see Jesus. So if he calls me home today through COVID, I'm cool with that. That's fine. I just want to see Jesus. So that's all right. Bottom line is, though, I do like to live a life that's comfortable. I want to have enough in my bank account. I don't really want to have to depend on Jesus for my daily bread, if I'm honest. I like having enough. I don't really care to be rich, but I don't really want to be without. And so I had to start to recognize not only did I have fear that needed to be purged in my soul, I had too many earthly attachments. The old timers used to use this phrase all the time. Before you can attach to Jesus and his eternal kingdom, you must detach from the temporal things of this world. There is no attachment to the eternal without detachment from the temporal. One of the things that this crisis revealed is I had a little too much attachment to the temporary comforts of life. Here's the great spiritual problem with earthbound attachments. It robs you of your heart's affection for Jesus. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. This season has exposed in a lot of people's lives that they've had a little too much treasure rooted in earthbound attachments. And as a result of that being exposed, it's revealing to a bunch of us that maybe we need to detach before Jesus can be our first love. And please hear me. Revival cannot come to the church unless Jesus is our first love. And as long as earthbound things are robbing us from our Jesus-bound affections, revival cannot come to the church. So part of what I had to recognize is I had to detach from some of these earthly pleasures and comforts. And uh, I had to really sink my roots deep in eternity. Hebrews chapter 12 is a really interesting chapter of scripture. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about uh, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And when it refers to the kingdoms of this world, it talks about them as shakable kingdoms. And when it refers to the kingdom of heaven, it refers to it as the unshakable kingdom. Think of a throw rug for a second, right? You have a little rug by the door in your house. The thing gets dirty. Sometimes you just pick it up or even a car mat and you shake it out and all the dirt goes flying off. What Jesus is referring to and what the writer of Hebrews is referring to is the stuff of this world is incredibly temporary. None of it will be permanent. None of it will last. It will all in the end be shaken out. 
And whatever we attach to on earth will be worthless to us by the end. The only thing that will last is the eternal things of God. It is often during times of crisis that we begin to realize, I've got too many attachments to stuff that don't matter. What really matters is Jesus and his eternal kingdom. And this is part of what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to sink deep roots in our eternal, unshakable kingdom. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth. On earth, we're just passing through, man. We're visitors. And we need to sink deep roots in heaven. When I was uh, reflecting about this kind of stuff, uh, this story came to my mind. It's uh, something that happened two years ago. Jen and I were on a trip. We were headed from Newark to Cozumel for a vacation. And uh, on this particular trip, we're someplace over Florida. And all of a sudden, uh, for the only time in my life, I had a weird experience on a plane. This woman, a flight attendant, comes running down the aisle of the plane, screaming at the top of her lungs, there's a fire in the cockpit! There's a fire in the cockpit! I mean, she did not seize this moment with calmness, right? She is screaming at the top of her lungs. I'm telling you, people are freaking out. The plane is a buzz. People are screaming, crying. And then she comes running back the other way, screaming, brace, 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 right? And I mean, people are bracing. People are screaming. The lady in front of me faints, and her husband is slapping her in the head, trying to wake her up. It was sheer pandemonium, right? I leaned over to Jen in the midst of this crisis. I kissed her on the cheek and I said to her, if we die, it's been a good life. I'm glad I've known you. And then I went back to reading my book, right? The plane lands. And when the plane lands, there's fire trucks all over the place. Sirens are going, ambulances and all this stuff. I check my pulse. My pulse is 60. My calm and my peace in that moment was as sure and as real as my eternal citizenship in heaven. The deeper we have roots sunk in our eternal citizenship, the more unflappable we are in life's crises. The more crises reveal cracks, the more we need to sink deep roots. Are you tracking with me, guys? Second thing. If we're going to capitalize on this moment as the church, then I think we're going to have to pursue God for his presence. We got to purge and we've got to pursue his presence. We've got to pursue his presence. One of the great things about this opportunity for us, friends, is that we have more time to be alone with God. You have isolation going on. You can't be in lots of places. We're just starting to open up. But the reality is we've had months here where we couldn't go anywhere, do anything. I haven't traveled in months. So, you know, I make my living traveling. I travel 130 days a year. And these days I'm completely homebound, you know. So I've been spending way more time with God. I'm capitalizing off this moment. I'm spending several hours every day alone with the Lord. And then sometimes in the evening, I go back to visit him again. I'm spending blocks of time alone with God. Please hear me. I'm not spending time binging Netflix. 
I'm spending time pursuing his presence. Why? Because Netflix is part of the shakeable kingdom. I want to go after the eternal. And I want Jesus to be my number one heart's affection. Now, please hear what I'm going to say next. If we're going to pursue God for deeper intimacy, we have to clear out all of our offenses with God during this season. And there's a lot of offenses that arise with God during times of hardship. Often when things get difficult, we take offense at God. Why didn't God protect me? Why didn't God help me? Why won't God provide for me the way I want him to? You know, we take offense. And when we have offense with another person, we can't draw near to that person. You have to clear the offense before you can connect in intimacy with anyone. And that includes God. So I'll give you, again, some personal learnings in this season for me, personal examples, and you do parallel learning in your own life. One of the offenses I had to clear with God in the midst of this season had to do with, again, my uh, sort of ministry. Um, <clears throat> as an author, you know, I have been um, working on building a platform, you know, really, I'm self-published. And, you know, just so you understand, the average self-published author sells 91 books in their lifetime, okay? So this is really hard to be self-published and establish any kind of a platform. It's super rare. Um, before COVID hit, my book, Soul Care, was distributing 350 books a week in uh, bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, local bookstores, etc. 350 books a week. Listen, that's not bestseller category, but it's approaching 20,000 books a year. On top of that, I'm out there selling books on my own. So I was selling a fair amount of books, man. It was really building up. This thing ramped up over four years. Uh, it was really headed in the right direction. I'm super excited about it because I've been doing this been praying into this. God's given me promises about this stuff. I've been praying into this for years. COVID hits. I went from 350 books a week being distributed to less than 40. It dismantled four years worth of work in four weeks. And I'm telling you, man, on my birthday, April 10th, I was sitting there sobbing over the loss but I had to grieve it. And then I needed to surrender. Part of what happens in seasons like this is it's easy to see all the stuff we lose and we need to grieve it. You do. You need to grieve it. But then you need to die to self. You need to stop making it so much about you. And you need to make it about Jesus and his eternal kingdom. And you can't get rid of your offense until you die to self and stop making it about you and make it about Jesus and his eternal kingdom. I'll tell you another big loss for me in this season. Uh, my dad has AML, acute myeloid leukemia. It's a deadly disease. He can't really, he has very little immune system, so he can't really be exposed to anything. So when you know people talk about isolation, my dad can't go anywhere, see anyone. So I can't go see my dad. Listen, my dad's 78 years old. I don't know if I'll ever be able to see him again. That's a tremendous loss. I wrote a comment in my book. I said, COVID-19 is not just a killer, it's a thief. It has been robbing us of all kinds of things. 
It's been robbing us of our freedoms. It's been robbing us of opportunities. It's been robbing us of financial things. It's been robbing us of relational things. But the reality is many times when we get robbed, we blame God. We take offense with God. We can't draw near to God until we remove our offenses with God. So you have to grieve and you have to surrender. And when you grieve and you surrender, then you can pursue his face and you'll be able to draw near to God. One of the things that's been real helpful to me over the years and has come back to me again in this season in terms of pursuing God and really grieving well is uh, advice my buddy Ron Walborn gave to me. And many of you know Ron. Ron attends Risen King sometimes when he's around. And uh, these days, I mean, none of us attend Risen King currently live in action, but Hopefully that's returning soon. Um, so anyways, one day I was in uh, just 2013. I went through a really dark season in my life. I had four promises that God had given me. Some of them were uh, confirmed promises. I mean, like, for example, the Lord gave me a dream about a coming revival. And then he gave me a sign in the dream. The dream was in 2006. The sign that God gave me in 2006 in this dream, I asked a prophetic person in the dream, what is the sign of the coming revival? And the Lord said, the sign is that the New Orleans Saints are going to win the Super Bowl. Well, even if you're not a football fan, 2010, New Orleans Saints won the Super Bowl for the only time in franchise history, right? And uh, listen, I've been praying into this thing, working towards this thing. And at the time, I was a pastor at South Shore Community Church in 2013. The sign had been fulfilled, and our church wasn't not only not experiencing renewal, uh, people were leaving our church and offended that I was preaching on revival. Okay. Um, I had other promises that came with an audible voice of God, and they had not been fulfilled. And I'm praying into these things, some of them for longer than a decade. And I got to the place where I'm like, God, I know it's not true theologically, but emotionally, I feel like you lie. You gave me a promise and you don't fulfill it. And so I called up my buddy, Ron Walborn, and I said to Ron, I said, I need a day in your life. And this was in the summer of 2013. He said to me, you got it. When do you want it? And so I gave him a day. We went, I, I picked him up. We drove to a Pirates game. Pirates had made the playoffs for the first time in Lord knows how long. And he's a Pirate fan. And so I said, I'll buy tickets to the Pirates game. I said, I'll pick you up in New York. We'll drive down to Pittsburgh together. I said, I'll process all this garbage in my soul on the way down. And then after we get there, um, we'll watch the game. We'll stop processing. And then on the way home, we can process again. And so we did. And, you know, he empathized with me. I yelled, I screamed, I cried. I'm just getting up all of the junk in my heart, all of the offenses. And on the way home, he said two things to me that I remember that were super helpful. Here was the first. He said to me, buddy, you got to keep preaching what you believe. He said, you preach the word and not your experience. Whether you feel like you're seeing it or not is irrelevant. You preach what you know is true. And then he said to me this, he said, you know, you're an intense guy. I said, I know that. He goes, you need to have more fun in life. Now, that didn't sound like very spiritual advice, but I'll tell you what, I took on fun as a spiritual discipline. 
Just like I take on spiritual retreating as a discipline, Jesus practiced spiritual retreats. He'd get alone to be with his father in the middle of the night, off on a boat, up in the mountains. He did this regularly. If you read the Gospels, you will see Jesus retreating on a regular basis. And I practice spiritual retreats on a regular basis. And so I started adding fun to my life, just like I add retreats. And, you know, Psalm 38 makes this comment, taste and see that the Lord is good. But how do you really taste and see that God is good? I mean, you can't lick him. So how do you figure out that God is good? What does he mean by that? I think in part, at least what he means is this. Participate in the good things of life with a grateful heart. And when you participate in the good things of life with a grateful heart, you get to experience the goodness of God. Taste and see is experiential. You get to experience his goodness again. Listen, hardship, crises have a way of robbing you of your understanding and experience of the goodness of God. But having fun, doing things that are replenishing with the grateful heart that this is a good gift from your father, restores the goodness of God to the center of your soul. And in the midst of this crisis, you must be intentional about doing the things that refill, replenish, because this is a draining time. And to refill and replenish with a grateful heart can help you to understand once again and know and experience the goodness of God at the center of your soul. One last thing. If we're going to capitalize and seize on this critical moment in the church, I think we're going to have to live purposely on mission for the kingdom. We're going to have to live purposely on mission for the kingdom. Listen, there's a world of difference between a revival and an awakening. A revival often occurs in a local center with religious people. In other words, in a church or even in a denomination or in a region where the churches are. But when it moves to an awakening, it hits the community and changes the social and moral fiber of the community. It reaps a harvest, changes hearts, and reforms society. It undoes social justices. It removes offenses. It restores and reconciles relationships to God and to people. Only God can change the human heart. This is why all my bag, all my eggs are in the basket for revival, because we've got to have an er revival that moves to an awakening in order to see true social reform in our society, because it's got to include heart change, not just law change. Don't get me wrong. I think we need to fight for justice and law changes, but we need more than that, gang. If it's going to stick, we need God to change the human heart. And this is what I think we need to fight for. But please hear me. The reason why churches sometimes see renewal without seeing awakening is because they never get mobilized on purposeful kingdom mission. They stay together just like the church in Jerusalem. They don't scatter on mission. And if we're going to see an awakening that reforms society today, which I think we're ripe for, we've got 
to experience mobilization on mission. That means we need to engage. We need to engage on mission. We need to engage on service opportunities. One of the cool things about this current crisis is, you know, I'm getting to spend more time with my neighbors. I mean, you know, everybody's outside doing stuff now that the weather's better. And, you know, so you socially distance, but you have more uh, conversation. Jen and I live on a lake here, which I'm standing out on my porch, sitting out on my porch, and I'm looking at my lake right now. And uh, Jen and I, we, we, we uh, bought kayaks this year so that we could, you know, sort of tool around the lake. And I've met more of my neighbors during this time because they're all out boating. They're, you know, they're all tooling around the lake, kayaks and boats and all this stuff. And I'm meeting people out on the lake. One day I'm out on the lake and I meet this guy. His name is Mike. I mean, he is clearly demonized. Man, I've done 10,000 plus deliverances in my lifetime, right? But his eyes are wild. The guy's as drunk as a skunk. It's in the middle of the day out there. And I thought to myself, I need to help Mike come to Jesus because Mike needs Jesus. He needs a deliverance, man. Okay. I'm on mission. I was talking to my neighbor over here on my on my left side, and uh, yesterday, uh, the day before, we're just sitting out there one night again. It's you know later, and uh, sun's gone down, and it's a little darker, and we're talking about the desperation of the times. We're talking about the financial desperation. We're talking about the you know the sickness and the health desperation, the racial issues going on, the civil unrest, and uh, it's a wreck, man. We're talking about the political climate. As we're talking about this stuff, this guy looks at me. This guy, no church whatsoever. No church. Okay. Swears like a sailor. And uh, he's not interested mostly in things of God. He looks at me and he goes, you know, he goes, we need God. And then he said to me, unless Jesus' prayer comes true, your kingdom come. I don't think we could get out of this mess. This is my neighbor. He's a completely unchurched guy. He's looking at it going, the world has screwed up. People have screwed up the world. There's no chance people are going to resolve the issues that they have created. We need God. This is just some guy that's next to me and he sees it. Listen, I'm telling you, this is an incredible kingdom opportunity. But only if the church gets purged. Only if the church gets the presence of God deeply set as their first priority, Jesus is their first love. And only if the church gets mobilized purposely on mission for the kingdom, we could seize a moment like never before in our lifetimes. I want to close with this. You know, uh, I've been talking to a lot of people that feel like we're coming to the end. As a matter of fact, I did believers and non-believers ask me this question. Do you think this is the end of the world? Do you think this is the end times? There's a lot of apocalyptic stuff. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's a group of people out there. They call themselves preppers. Okay. Preppers. They are preparing for the end of the world. And these are believers and non-believers. And, you know, so they're, some of them are buying guns and they're supplying food, getting food. I mean, they're, they're, it's just this craziness out there. Jesus talks a lot about the end. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25. It's all sort of end times kinds of stuff. And you know what Jesus' central question is about the end? This is it. You ready? You know why the Bible talks about the end? It's only for one purpose. Here it is. You ready? This is the only question that matters about the end times. You're never going to know the day or the hour. That's what Jesus said. So here's the one important question. Are you ready? 
are you ready? If Jesus comes tomorrow, are you ready? Do you have an account that's worthy of giving? Are you living your life wholeheartedly for Jesus? Is Jesus your number one heart's affection? Is the kingdom your number one purposeful engagement and intention? Are you ready? That's the whole purpose of the end time stuff in scripture. And that's the question that I leave you with today. Are you ready? I think this is a time of preparation, not for the end of the world, but for full engagement in the kingdom, for the glory of the king. Let's pray together. Father, I do believe in all my heart we are standing on the precipice of an unprecedented kingdom opportunity. This is a unique moment in history. I pray we would not miss it. I pray we be the people we need to be so the church can be launched and mobilized on mission, fully engaged. Jesus as our number one affection, the kingdom as our sole purposeful intention. And as a result, we would see a harvest. We would see an awakening in our lifetime that would change the social and moral fiber of society. I pray it, Lord, because you told us to pray that prayer that my neighbor mentioned. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings to you, gentlemen. Wow. Thanks, Rob. We're all clapping here. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> um, that was incredible. Uh, I'm not going to say much. I'm going to kick it right over to my buddy Joe in a second. But just a reminder, the link to Rob's new book is in our chat. It's on Amazon, Common Storm, audiobook, Kindle, all kinds of different versions are out there. So make sure you grab that.